With younger generations seeking experiences and unique alcoholic beverages, what's going on in the wide world of wine? Sean Schiffer of Foley Family Wines and City National Bank's Mike Dallape will help us break down demographic trends, what wine varieties are growing, and how California state wineries have contended with changing weather patterns. On this episode of the Food Institute Podcast, coming at you right now. All right, so before we get started today, I did want to thank the sponsor of today's episode, and that is City National Bank. Food Institute podcast listeners are probably already familiar with CMB, but if it's your first time here, they do provide banking, investment, and trust services for the food industry. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about them, please take a look at the description of this episode, or you can visit them at cnb.com slash food and bev. And now with that out of the way, to get us started, why don't you both quickly introduce yourselves, and then we can jump right into today's conversation. Hi, my name is Sean Schiffer, and I'm the president of Foley Family Wines. Hi, this is Mike Delape. I'm a managing director of the Food and Beverage Group at City National Bank, part of the RBC Group company. So thanks, guys, for both introducing yourselves there. And I was thinking we could start off with you, Sean, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about the history of Foley Family Wines to get us started today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So our family ownership, uh, Bill and Carol Foley, moved to Santa Barbara, California in 1995. And they bought their first winery called Lincourt. It was named after their two daughters, Lindsay and Courtney, and it's uh, located in Solvang, California. And in 1996, they founded Foley Family Wines. um, And Bill found out as he entered the wine business that in order to be relevant to beverage alcohol distributors, he would need to expand and develop some scale. Uh, especially in Napa and Sonoma. So he continued acquiring vineyards and wineries. Um, The portfolio grew to include Firestone Winery in Santa Inez, Three Rivers in Walla Walla, Washington, and then Maris and Coletto in Napa Valley. And then he also picked up Sebastiani Vineyard in Sonoma and a portfolio of New Zealand wines. In uh, 2010, that was probably the biggest year of acquisitions in the history of Foley. Um, he purchased uh, Chalk Hill Estate and Lancaster and Roth, which are all out on uh, Chalk Hill Road in Sonoma County. And then Shalom Vineyard in Monterey County, which is a historic vineyard whose wines were in the famous uh, Judgment of Paris. And then uh, expanded into Oregon with uh, Acrobat and the Four Graces and uh, in 2020, he started another string of acquisitions by picking up Ferrari Carano Estate in Dry Creek. And then in 2021, we acquired Chateau St. Jean Winery in Kenwood and Silverado Vineyards in 22. And then just this year, um, we closed on a distillery in Minden, Nevada. So uh, that's where we are at present. We're about 450 people in our company and we produce and ship about 1.8 million cases of wine on an annual basis. Uh, by volume, we're the another, number 17 uh, winery in the U.S. And thanks for sharing all of that. I think something that we can really highlight, though, um, would be the estate aspect of the business. It was really interesting on a pre-call when you told me a little bit about how a lot of these different wineries do have you know, an on-premise kind of component to it. So could you explain a little bit about that and how it ties into the identity of Foley overall? Yeah, I would say that our estate wineries and um, estate hospitality centers are are a key strategic differentiator for Foley. A number of the wineries in our competitive set 
have you know a few of these type of assets, but I think the range and and depth of our uh, estate assets is is really kind of unparalleled in the wine business. Um, and our 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 properties like Silverado and Ferrari Carano, Chateau Saint Jean, Chalk Hill. They're all situated on historic wine growing estates in some of California's top American viticultural areas or AVAs. The, the big reason on the winemaking side is it gives our winemakers direct assets to our own estate fruit, which allows them to really bring out the true varietal expression of the vineyard sites and the growing area. And it provides a great window into, into quality control and taste profile. Um, we've got our own in-house farming team that works very closely with our vineyard and winemaking teams and provides us additional quality control. And then on the hospitality side, our objective is to uh, have people come visit our wineries and obviously in, enjoy the great wines that we make, but also to really enjoy the beauty of some of these sites. Uh, you know, Chateau St. Jean, uh, Chalk Hill, these are absolutely stunning venues uh, where people come can come and enjoy uh, the natural beauty of our vineyards and uh, also have a great experience with friends and family enjoying some some really, really good wines. Yeah, and I really thought that was an important thing to bring up. And I know you just mentioned that you also have a vineyard in operation in New Zealand. I'm wondering if there's any other places you've expanded on beyond the U.S. and maybe some of the rationale behind moving outside of the West Coast there and taking a look at other countries for some operations. Could you fill us in on that a little bit? Yeah, um, so uh, Bill uh, purchased his New Zealand business, Foley Wines New Zealand, um, probably 13 or 14 years ago. It's a it's a publicly traded company on the New Zealand Stock Exchange. And I think uh, New Zealand is, is kind of globally recognized as a great wine producer producing country. They're primarily known for producing uh, excellent Sauvignon Blanc. And so um, there was an opportunity in New Zealand for Bill not only to um, progress his wine business, but also he has a number of hospitality assets there as well. So that, that was a, a good move for him. We sell our wines in about 45 markets around the world. Uh, Canada represents our largest trading partner by both volume and uh, dollar value, but we're also seeing solid growth in Mexico, Japan, Australia, and especially the United Kingdom. In fact, we've established a bottling um, operation partnership with a leading uh, sustainable bottler in the UK, and um, our our wines continue to expand their presence globally. We've got a very good international sales team, so we're constantly on the lookout for uh, acquisition opportunities, both in the United States and globally. And one last thing I'd like to follow up on, you said during the introduction there to Foley Family Wines is that you also expanded into the spirits category. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that move, maybe what caused the company to explore, you know, extending itself beyond just wine and taking a look at the spirits category. Yeah, absolutely. There, there was a couple of reasons. I think the first thing when you're, you know, in any type of consumer goods business is starting with just that, what does the consumer want? And I think in the U.S. and globally right now, um, especially as we consider the younger demographics of millennials and Generation Z, 
um, they are they are very much engaged in the cocktail culture and uh, drinking distilled spirits. And as distilled spirits um, takes more of their share of throat, if you will, um, we thought it was incumbent upon us to, to get involved in that space. Um, in the United States, beverage alcohol is sold through what's called the three-tier system. So uh, a distributor partner has to uh, sell the wine to individual retailers. And our alignment with uh, Southern Glazers Wines and Spirits, which is the largest distributor in the United States, um, presented us with an opportunity to move more products through that route to market. Um, we wanted to make sure that they were congruent with the, the image and price point of our estate wines. Uh, but primarily it was uh, in response to, to consumer demand. And um, we just closed on a distillery in Minden, Nevada, which is outside of the Reno Lake Tahoe area in May, uh, called the Foley Family Minden Mill Distillery. Um, we've got a great young uh, master distiller there named Joe O'Sullivan, and he's producing new to the world brands of bourbon, rye, American single malt, and also white spirits um, from locally sourced sustainable grains. This is an estate distillery, if, if you will. And then we've also launched or relaunched some legacy spirits brands. Bill owned uh, Lighthouse Gin out of New Zealand and a new brand called um, Charles Goodnight Texas Bourbon, uh, which is made uh, in, in the heart of Texas and uh, is capitalizing on the consumer demand for bourbon right now. So it's a nascent business for us, but uh, we've kind of gone all in with the distillery and we're very excited to see what this can do for our, our company in the next few years. So Mike, I'd like to bring you into the conversation at this point. We were just talking a little bit about demographics with Sean. I'm wondering from your vantage point, you know, which demographics are you finding have the highest demand for wines in the current day? Well, I think currently uh, there's really a tale of two stories with the wine industry, what's going on with the wine industry industry relative to sales. There's the premium wines, and then there's the moderate and low-priced wines. The, what's selling really well right now are premium wines, and um, typically the price points are $15 a bottle and higher. Um, so naturally, you're going to have um, baby boomers and uh, Gen Xers are, are going to be the majority of the, of the target demographic who are consuming wines. Um, and, and that has been historically the case um, and will continue to be the case. Um, but and interestingly enough, I think the Gen Zs and, and a portion of the millennials um, are really trying to just starting to discover wine versus other alcoholic beverages. Um, they're moving away from beer. That's pretty clear in the marketplace as we've seen a decline in sort of beer sales. Um, but what makes it, I think, interesting is that you have the Gen X and the baby boomers that are already on their way and they're already educated on what goes into wines, which wines they like, where's the wine from, um, and they're gonna continue to consume. But with the Gen Z and a good portion of the millennials, their centers of influence have changed. Um, they're much more influenced by social media. They have a phone in their hand and, and relatively no time at all can determine where a wine was made, where it came from, what is the story behind the wine? And they can easily pull up Bill Foley's story and understand why he purchased the wines that he did and that this particular wine came from his vineyard 
And oh, by the way, it's an hour from San Francisco and I can go, I can go visit it and see it. So you are going to see, um, I think, a change in um, sort of the demographics of, of who's buying premium wines just because of the, how the center of influence has changed in the, in the younger generation. Yeah, and I'd like to throw it back to you, Sean. Is this something that Foley is seeing as well? Yeah, I, I, I really do agree with, with uh, what Mike said there. Um, for, for us, it varies by wine brand. So we have uh, wines like Banshee that really resonate with younger wine drinkers. And then we have luxury wines like Silverado, which skew toward an older demographic. But we're beginning to attract a younger audience through the right marketing, social media events, et cetera. Um, the, the fact that Mike mentioned about with, um, with uh, you know, generations now, obviously growing up with, with everyone owning a, a smartphone, um, their level of education and knowledge and ability to research wines is really, um, you know, unparalleled compared to uh, maybe the Generation X or Baby Boomers generation. Th those folks would typically engage with a, a set of brands early in their legal drinking age and above uh, drinking experience, if you will, and, and maybe go back to those for most of their adult life. Um, younger demographics are, are much more, um, have much more of a wide assortment of beverages they drink. Um, the Silicon Valley Bank State of the Wine Industry report that just came out found that wine consumption is still growing among people 60 and older, and that younger people are drinking, but about 35% of that Generation Z cohort, so somewhere in the 21 to 29-year-old range, drink alcohol, but not wine. So in terms of marketing uh, ultra premium and luxury wines, uh, wine marketers uh, certainly have their work cut out for them. So it's interesting to hear about the social media aspect on the research side, but I do think, you know, you also have, you know, the FOMO aspect where people want to be doing things, having these experiences. And we really hear this a lot about younger consumers. So Mike, from your vantage point, you know, how important is this? How do you think Foley meets that demand when you take a look at their operations and kind of meeting people as they are looking for those experiences and not just products? You know, look, I, I think it's very important. Um, you know, I, I have two, um, two um, Gen Zs in my household um, and um, clearly they're about experiences. Um, they wanna um, not only drink something, but they wanna know the story behind it and they wanna go see how it's made and um you know bill and his team um really have focused on acquiring uh wineries and properties that um as sean had previously said are just um yeah, surrounded by natural beauty um built into the landscape of uh the various wine regions you know in napa and sonoma and, and the pacific northwest um, and, and often they're beautiful places that people want to go visit. And um, when if they're able to do that and they're able to, uh, to, to experience that with Bill's properties, I think he's hit the nail right on the head. Um, and he's doing it really well. I mean, if, if, if anyone's been to Chalk Hill and toured that property and actually had a tasting and, and or a lunch, um, or took a horse ride through the vineyards, which Bill and his team used to do. Um, it, it's majestic. And it's one of those memories that they'll have. And that consumer will take it back to his home, to his friends, and tell that story. 
um, and it's going to create sort of a good solid pull through on the sales side for for not only Chalk Hill but for Bill's other brands. Yeah, and I think we've seen that across the alcohol sphere. You know, the craft beer boom comes and a lot of people are really enjoying going to the actual brewery. I feel like a lot of people like going to the distillery. So when you're able to combine a beautiful, you know, vineyard as well with the whole production process, you know, obviously I think that's going to be a huge selling point to have people really, really kind of fall in love with these types of wines. Um, I would like to switch gears a little bit, Sean. And, you know, this is more of a high level question, but I think you have a ton of, you know, research and, you know, sales data that could probably back it up. But you know, what are the most popular wine varieties at the current moment? Are you seeing, you know, older varieties coming back? Is it newer varieties? You know, what's really selling the best and really getting the attention of consumers in the current day? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, in in the in the pandemic, when people were, um, you know, in their in their homes for an extended period of time, uh, beverage alcohol categories, you know, saw a, a pretty strong surge in volume, and and wine was definitely part of that. Um, uh, believe it or not, the popularity of sparkling wine really sparked globally and, you know, not just champagne. Um, we have some sparkling wines with uh, Banshee, Chateau Saint-Jean and Foley Sonoma, and all of them are growing. So I would say anything with bubbles in it right now is having a bit of a moment. Uh, we've even got a French Cremant uh, called Lucien Albrecht, and it's the number one imported brand from uh, Alsace. And uh, I would say Sauvignon Blanc is is very strong right now it's, as well. In fact, it's the only varietal that experienced positive growth uh, over the last year in the entire U.S. wine industry. So if you look at it as just by grape type, Sauvignon Blanc is, is very strong, uh, both domestic and Im imported. Um, our Ferrari Carano Fumé Blanc is about a quarter of our company's business. And um, high-end Sauvignon Blancs, uh, such as Lancaster and Silverado, uh, are trending uh, not just with Foley, but across our competitive set as well. But that being said, Cabernet continues to be the king as the leading red wine, and Chardonnay owns the largest share of white wine sold to retailers. So the, the, the two top uh, players, if you will, stayed in place. Um, but uh, consumers, especially that younger demographic, is more um, more open to expanding and trying different types. And I think that's why you see some of these uh, grape varietals uh, on, on the rise. And another thing I'd like to talk about with those younger consumers, I know we talked about, you know, the FOMO aspect, you know, being more open to trying different things. Something we're finding at the Food Institute is that younger consumers are really seeking sustainable products. And I know that Foley has a sustainability story to share. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that as well, Sean. Yeah, I I, I think, um, you know, the ideal of sustainability um, has really moved into kind of the, the forefront of popular and business culture in the past several years. Um, but in any agriculturally based business such as ours, sustainability has always been important. Um, we've got a number of sustainability initiatives, including uh, around our, far our farming uh, involved with water reduction. It takes a lot of water to make a bottle of wine and we continually look for ways to reduce that. Um, our energy usage, our waste management, and uh, very, very prominently, uh, our packaging of our, our brands. And then there's the human elements such as living wages, training, and education. 
Um, all of our wineries are certified sustainable by the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance. And our vineyards are in year three of a three-year process. We expect by the end of the uh, year, our wineries will be certified sustainable as well as our vineyards. Um, so uh, what you what you reference there with uh, millennials and generation in, and Gen Z, um, sustainability is very important, and it's very important it, that it be uh, authentic. And so we uh, we work very hard in that area. And Mike, are you seeing that same kind of demand across the food industry from your spot as well, or is this you know something the only younger consumers are going after? How do you see the whole sustainability story? Look, I, I think all consumers today are concerned about sustainability. Um, obviously, global warming is is becoming a much more obvious issue that's affecting um, heat, water, weather more than ever, and uh, it's it's a concern for 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 all consumers, but more particularly younger consumers, um, for, I think for two different reasons. One, the basic reason is they're going to be around a lot longer when we're gone, and they want to have a world to enjoy and all the benefits of that, and it's much more on their forefront, and um, you know, the, the Gen Z that are in my household and that I know through them, um, that's a pretty pretty prominent message that I hear. Um, they're not only interested in where it's made, but how it's made. Um, and things like water, use of pesticides, um, the, the, you know, um, we touched, Sean touched on it, living wage and training and, and how they treat the people that actually make the wines. That's all really important to them. Um, it, it, it's actually become you know, this whole concept of sustainability has really come on the forefront of a popular culture right now. And, and you are seeing that um, definitely in the Gen Z and the millennial um, demographic. Yeah, Mike, and to that point, I'm an East Coast boy, so I didn't have to deal with this until this summer. But, you know, even here on the East Coast, we started dealing with smoke from wildfires. And I know California has been contending with some pretty interesting and adverse weather the past few years from drought to almost too much rain this year. So, Sean, I'm just wondering, how is fully contended with this adverse weather? How difficult does it make it for production when you have to basically look year by year? And in some years, it's we have not enough water. Sometimes we have too much. I know smoke can impact uh, vineyards as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, uh, wine business because of the nature of of vintages requires a, a lot of strong and disciplined planning. And there's uh, one thing you can't plan around, and that's Mother Nature. And I guess um, it starts really with strong communication between our winemaking team and our our, our vineyards team. Um, as we get into harvest season, they have weekly meetings to align expectations. And, um, you know, our vineyard cultural practices uh, to allow us to accommodate for any crazy weather patterns. Uh, you know, if there's a rain spike right as you're harvesting or late in the growing cycle, that can be almost as big of a problem as, as a fire. Um, fires have been um, very, very concerning for us, not only in California, but uh, up in Oregon, um, we've had some really uh, devastating years in terms of, of crop damage, um, but there's certain things that, that we can do. The first thing we did is we invested in laboratory equipment that allows us to run sophisticated analysis um, on all of our grapes to see if a fire uh, produces smoke taint, and that gives us quick results so we can make the right decisions to move forward 
at you know a couple hours notice. Um, we also have an air quality monitoring system called Purple Air out in our vineyards that helps us make those decisions and also signals to us when the air quality index is at an unhealthy level. So we avoid putting our team members into that environment where they might um, run into respir respiratory issues. Um, but yeah, the, the weather is, is a very challenging thing. And, you know, that's where the, the, the collective hundreds of years of winemaking and grape growing experience our team has, um, you know, really help us uh, navigate those uh, on what's unfortunately become an almost annual basis. And thanks for sharing that. One last thing I'd like to talk about too, and I believe you just alluded to it a little bit earlier when we were talking about sustainable products is, you know, more sustainable packaging. So I was wondering what you could tell us what Fully Family Wines is doing on that regard. Yeah, the packaging one is is interesting because I think in the wine business, uh, we, we often talk to ourselves about packaging and, um, you know, deciding what, what the right way forward is. You, you've seen... Um, innovations like paper bottles, different things. Um, and some of those have worked and, and some have not. Um, I think, uh, you know, canned wine had a little bit of a moment and I think there will always be some wine in cans right now, but I think most consumers um, expect their wine to, to generally, uh, most of it comes in a 750 milliliter glass bottle. And, um, you know, box wine is very popular as well. But with, with wine, especially in on-premise environments, people, when they're going out for a nice dinner and they, they want a bottle of wine, the service ritual that goes with a glass bottle is oftentimes a very important part of that experience. So what, what can we do to be more environmentally friendly with glass? Well, the first thing is you can make your glass lighter. And there was historically a thought that um, a super heavy bottle was a quality cue to consumers. If they were paying, you know, hundreds of dollars for a bottle of a nap, of Napa Cab, they expected it to be in a substantial bottle. And what we've found is, um, you know, consumers uh, appreciate the eye toward sustainability with making glass lighter. Um, we had a company-wide initiative to reduce the weight of our glass produced and transported by our company and uh, in one year, we reduced 720 metric tons of glass weight, which is the equivalent of about 46,000 Stanley Cups that uh, Bill's ice hockey team just won in June. So um, it's a matter of deciding it's important to the organization and it's certainly an area where we could make a, a pretty easy change that has a, a big impact. So I think that brings us to the end of our conversation today. Sean and Mike, I want to thank you both for spending some time with us today on the Food Institute podcast. I'm wondering, Sean, if our audience wants to learn more about Foley Family Wines, where should they go? Yeah, you can buy Foley Family Wines at any retailer um, on-premise or uh, in, a, in a restaurant type situation or grocery store uh, where luxury wines are sold across the country. Um, as well as consumer direct through our winery hospitality centers um, on our estates and also online via the Foley Food and Wine Society website.
And we'll definitely share a link in the description of this episode so you can get right there. And Mike, I was hoping you could also let us know if anyone wants to learn a little bit more about City National Bank, where should they go? Sure, uh, definitely go to the City National Bank slash RBC website, www.cnb.com. Uh, feel free to click on um, specifically the food and beverage link. Uh, and you'll learn more about our team, uh, the team that covers the wine industry um, and all our capabilities. And once again, you can take a look in the description of the episode for a link directly to City National Bank's website as well. Once again, guys, I want to thank you both for spending some time with us today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Once again, thanks to Sean and Mike spending some time with us. And of course, thanks to our sponsor, City National Bank. But we'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off. Thank you.